Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, we read this verse. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In the seventh verse of the ninth chapter, he said it again, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, multiply in it. So when they came off the ark, God's commission to them is populate, repopulate the earth. Go fill it. Last Sunday, we looked at the latter portion of, of the chapter of the story of Noah getting drunk and being disrespected by his son Ham. We read Noah's prophetic words that he spoke over his three sons. The curse that he pronounced on Ham's fourth son, Canaan. And, and don't forget that before the drunken experience in the tent, years before that, back to the day when Noah and the family disembarked from him, in response to Noah's worship, God said, I will give you a sign of the covenant that I've made to you with you to never again flood the earth and destroy humanity with a flood. And I put my bow in the sky, the rainbow that was around the throne of God. And uh, as we're making our way through the book of Genesis, we've come to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is one of those that we have a tendency to skip over when we get to it because there's a list of names. It starts out the generations of the sons of Noah. Chapter 10 of Genesis, from a theological point of view, from a historical point of view, is a very important chapter. It has been given the title of Table of Nations. The Table of Nations. It is called that because we are given a quick overview of the spreading of humanity across the globe. In verse 5, we read this at the end of verse 5, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with its own language, by their clans, in their nations. We read in verse 20, in verse 5, that was the sons of Jephthah. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Genesis 10, 31-32, these are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their language, their lands, their nations. Verse 32 said, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Over the past couple of weeks, I have read pages and pages and more pages of commentary on chapter 10 that speak about the migration of Noah's family as that the generations just kept going and going. I do not feel the need to go into a lot of detail about that this morning. How many are glad about that? Yeah? I just want to give you a brief summary of each of these branches of the family tree. When Moses wrote chapter 10, he started with Japheth, the one that he had prophesied that may God enlarge Japheth. May he enlarge you. As time went on, the family of Japheth inhabited lands in Europe and in Asia Minor. 
The places that are mentioned in chapter 10 would include places like present-day Germany, Russia, Italy, Spain, and India. Those of us that speak the English language, Caucasian people, Indian people, they would be all descendants of Japheth. And they believed that it was his family that finally crossed over from Russia over to Alaska into North America and eventually going even into South America. The family of Ham, <coughs> excuse me, the family of Ham settled in North Africa and the eastern Mediterranean coast. Among the places they inhabited was the land that God had promised to Abraham. And the names of the sons that occupied those lands, that's all those ites that you read in the book of Joshua and Judges, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the, and on and on and on. They inhabited the land that became Israel. The family of Shem settled in Mesopotamia and Arabia, a little farther east. One of Shem's sons' name was Eber or Eber. From that name we get the word Hebrew. It's from Eber's part of the family that Abram was born in Ur of the Chaldeans, Mesopotamia. In case you haven't noticed, in the bulletin this morning there's another insert with a map. And on that map you can see the little code there that tells you uh, which family these people belong to and where they ended up living as according to the scripture. It's something that if you want to read through chapter 10 in your own time and look at that, you can kind of get a feel of over the centuries as these families moved across the world. I want to make some quick observations regarding the table of nations before moving on to what I believe the message for today is. From chapter 10, we learn this. Yahweh, the Lord, capitals, the I am that I am, is the Lord of all the nations. He is the Lord of all the nations. When Paul was sharing a message in Athens, there was people in Athens who thought that they were very intellectual, and they thought that Paul was kind of a hayseed. Um, but they were interested in the message that he was preaching because they'd never heard the, 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 about this Jesus and so they invited him to come and share in their great auditorium there. And as he was sharing, he starts out, you have a God that you call the unknown God. You see, they wanted to worship. They want to make sure that they cover all their bases. So they, they had a, a memorial to the unknown God. And he said, I want to tell you about the unknown God. And he begins to talk about Yahweh. And then Jesus comes. But in in that first part of his message, he, he says this in verse 26 of Acts 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. 
I believe Paul made that statement based upon what he'd read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, when Moses is giving his final address to the Israelites before he passes on and they grow into the Canaan. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Though at times it may not seem like it, God has everything under control. In spite of what men in their might and their power may think, God is still the Lord of all the nations. Number two, all the ethnic groups belong to the same human family. It does not matter what country you were born in, what the pigment of your skin color is, the shape of your eyes. We all come from the sons of Noah. And going back even further, we all come from Adam and Eve. We all started from one place. The psalmist said he is the maker of us all. So there is no place for one ethnic group to feel superior to another ethnic group. There is no place for one economic group of people to feel superior to another economic group of people. You understand what I'm saying? We were all created by the Father, placed where the Father wants us to be, within the boundaries. He says, I put them there so people, the whole human race, might have the opportunity to know him and live in relationship with him. Number three, God has a purpose for the nations to fulfill. God has a purpose for the nations to fulfill. We read back in, in Acts 17, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, allotted periods. God chose Israel to be the source of blessing for the whole world and the fact that through Israel he would bring the one that he promised would crush the head of the serpent, the Messiah. Jesus Christ would be born through the, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Israel was not faithful to God, God used other nations to discipline Israel. When their time of being used for disciplinary purposes had come to an end, what happened to those nations? God had another nation who would come and just move them off the map. So we had <clears throat> the Babylonian Empire. Then we had the Medes and the Persians. Then we had the Romans. And it just has kept on going as time has gone on. God has a purpose for the nations to fulfill. Number four, God is concerned for all the nations. God is concerned for all the nations, about all the nations. That is why Jesus said, go into all, all the world and preach the gospel. That's why he said, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, 
You will have power. You will be witnesses of me in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Noah's three sons left a mixed legacy to the world. But the Lord of the nations is still in charge. History is his story. History is his story. I know there's all kinds of different groups around the globe trying to make history their story. But when it's all said and done, he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And it's all about his kingdom. That's one of the main messages that's inserted in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Chapter 10, we have the table of nations, the generations of nations' sons. The last part of chapter 11, we have the genealogy of Shem's descendants as they bring us to Abram, the father of faith. But in chapter 10 and chapter 11, there are two parentheticals, two parentheses, two interruptions to this list, where he gives us a little bit of history that is very important. When he's talking about some of the descendants that are coming down from the line of Ham and what they endeavored to do. So I want to read the first nine verses of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and, and let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. Does God have a sense of humor? So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This part of the chapter I said a moment ago is parenthetical. It's, it's not written in the chronological order of chapter 10. It's one of those, meanwhile, back at the ranch, where it connects to something that was written back in chapter 10. Chapter 10 tells us three times that there were groups of people who had moved to various parts of the world and had their own language. So I believe that the first nine verses are directly connected to what we read in chapter 10, verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Think Iran and Iraq when you're thinking about where Nimrod built his kingdom. So Nimrod was the founder of the first empire. He was the founder of the first empire. He built his kingdom. Three times in this text, the word mighty is used to describe the man Nimrod. Twice it says he was a mighty hunter. Thus, hunters today are often referred to as Nimrods. He was a mighty hunter. I have always looked at that verse as a commendation to this man Nimrod. He was a man who knew how to keep protein on the family table. Proficient in the skill of killing game. And perhaps that's exactly what the scripture means. And if that's what the scripture means, I'm justified by the fact that tomorrow morning I'm going to go elk hunting. But when it says he was the first on earth to become a mighty man, and this was the beginning of his kingdom, I am not so sure it was meant as a commendation at all. Listen to what Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, had to say about this man Nimrod. I think I put it on the screen. He was not a hunter of animals. He was a hunter of men. A warrior. It was through his ability to fight and kill and rule ruthlessly that his kingdom of the Euphrates Valley city-states was consolidated. He was a man with the charisma to get people to follow him. And if you didn't follow him, the implication from Martin Luther was you were eliminated. But he built these great cities, Shinar. Uh, I'll get ahead of myself. There's one other um, barn house. Um, he's written numerous commentaries, and there's copies of hundreds of his sermons. He paraphrased this passage of Scripture this way. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty despot in the land. He was an arrogant tyrant, defiant before the face of the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty despot, haughty before the face of the Lord. And the homeland of his empire was Babel, then Erech and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From this base he invaded the kingdom of Asher and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, and Kala, resident between Nineveh and Kala. These made up one great city. That's like going to Los Angeles. And when you're in Los Angeles, I forget how many cities are there now. You never know when you've gone from one to the next. Portland is that way these days. You go from Portland to Milwaukee, Lake Oswego, Oregon City. You don't know you've gone to Tualatin. You don't know you've gone from one to the other. This man, 
built in his lifetime his kingdom. This tower that he built in Shinar, this city is later known as Babylon. As Babylon. Verse 1 tells us all the people were still speaking the same language. They migrated together, coming to the plains of Shinar, they settled. The building of the city and the tower of Babel was in defiance to God's command to fill the earth. This was in God's face, defiance. God said, I want you to spread out. And Nimrod says, we're going to build a metropolis and we're going to build a tower to the heavens. It's all about human achievement and independence from God. Nimrod's name betrays his motive for building a city and a tower to heaven in that place called Babylon. When I clicked on my Strong's Concordance, Nimrod means rebellion. Nimrod means rebellion. He was a man, as I said a moment ago, who had the ability to persuade individuals to do things. I don't know if it's charisma or just brute force, but there was something about this man that, that inspired people to join his cause and embrace his values. There have been those kind of men who've come and gone in history. Stalin, Hitler, just to name a couple. Saddam Hussein. This mighty man, that was the kind of thing, he had great influence. His master plan was to create a city that highlights the exploits of mankind when they were working together in unity. Now, I don't know how in the world he got everybody to work together in unity. I don't think that's ever happened since that point. But he had everybody working together. Nimrod issued an invitation to come. Come. It has several parts to come. I don't know if the way it's written is in chronological order, how he gave them, or it was written in poetic form. For the sake of Hebrew literature. But he says, come, come make bricks. Come make bricks. Come and be a part of this great community effort. We've got this new industry. We're going to do something together, and it's going to be great. Let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and some kind of pitch or tar for mortar. Now, I don't know if when Moses is writing this, he's writing tongue-in-cheek, they had brick for stone. Instead of building with stone, they're making these bricks out of mud and firing them. Now, I don't know if you've ever laid bricks or laid stone, but those fired clay bricks, you take a hammer and they just fall to pieces. You drop them, uh-oh, we can't use that one. 
They were manufacturing a product that was probably much easier to install and much more accurate bricks. They make them all the same size. When you gather stones, now you've got to do some work. He said, come make bricks and come build a city. Come, let us build ourselves a city. Here's the thing about that city. It was all about man. God did not ordain building of the city, a great city. It was a secular city built of man, by man, for man's glory. A secular city built of man, by man, for man's glory. That note might not have been on your notes, but it's on mine. And I wanted you to see that. And the reason I wanted you to see that is we have come to a secular society where it's all about built by man, built of man, by man, for man's glory. Verse 4 said this, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to be dispersed over the face of the Lord. So let's make a name for ourselves. Come and let us make a name for ourselves. People today still have the tendency to want to make a name for themselves. But here's the thing about making a name for yourself. In, in the in the class, uh, the men's study, The Man in the Mirror, in the chapter that had to deal with identity, our self-identity, and uh, people, you know, our identity be wrapped up in what we do and how much money we have and our fame, whatever. They had a, a, a test of ten. And here's the, here's the six questions of the test of ten. Can you name the ten wealthiest men in the world? There might be one or two people here who know those ten names. Can you name the ten most admired men in the world? If you read People magazine, you might get one or two. Can you name the top ten corporate executives in America? Bill Gates, Musk, and I'm lost. Can you name the last 10 presidents of the United States? Only if you've been studying for history tests recently. Can you name the last 10 Nobel Prize winners? Can you name the 10 members of the president's current cabinet? Ron Strode preaches contemporary problems, but he's out hunting today, so I would have put him on the spot to find out. if The point of that test is this. There are some men who have made a great name for themselves, and we don't remember them, period. Like James said, they're like a mist. They're here today and gone tomorrow. 
But people of lasting significance in the Bible were given names by God himself, indicating what he was going to do through them. And we still remember those names. It was God who named Adam, the first man. God changed Abram's name to Abraham because you're going to be the father of a great nation. God changed Jacob's name. Jacob meant supplanter. And he changed his name to Israel, which means he contended with God. He strived with God and he's still alive. Jesus said to Simon Johnson, Simon the son of John, Simon Johnson, you are Simon, but you will be Peter. You are a reed, wavering in, that's what Simon meant, but you are going to be a rock. God even named Jesus. You will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Nimrod was all about making a name for himself. Nimrod wanted to establish his reputation and eliminate God entirely. He wanted to establish his reputation and eliminate God entirely. How do I know that? Because he did not want to be dispersed. God said, I want you to, and no, we're going to build this metropolis. And he convinced a whole lot of people to join him in the pursuit. He did indeed make a reputation for himself. But so did Judas Iscariot. It was not one of honor. He said, come, let us build a tower. Come, make bricks. Come, build a city. Come, build a tower. Build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, obviously, we're not given a whole lot of detail about this tower. It's, I read some Bible scholars who want to tell us just what kind of tower it was. In the footnotes of my ESV study Bible, they give you a picture of a ziggurat, a monumental temple tower. And while there's more than one design to these ziggurats, one thing they have in common is at the very top of it is a shrine signifying some form of deity. There's ruins of those kinds of temples all through Mesopotamia that have been dug up by archaeologists. Because of those structures and the fact that so many of those different gods with small g that men have made came out of Babylon. The tower with its top in the heavens was built to worship something other than Yahweh. It was built to worship something other than God. Whether it was a monument to Nimrod himself, there are a lot of scholars who spend a lot of time looking at the history, history of Babylon, and from Babylon we see a lot of astrology, has, that's where a lot of it came from. Some of them feel like that on top of that tower, their ultimate plan was to have a picture of, of the zodiac, the heavens, and worship the astrology and those kinds of things. We don't know that for sure. 
All we know is that we're going to build a tower to the heavens. And you recall all the Canaanite people, when they worshipped one of their man-made deities, they put their altars on the high places. Because when a good king came along, he would tear down the idols in high places. And so they would lift it up. So it was going to be a place of worship, but it wasn't going to be a place to worship God. This story has a second voice that comes into the story. There's a second voice that comes into the story. In verse 7, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. God speaking to God. Another evidence in the Scripture of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Come, let us go down. Verse 6, he said, because they're one people, one language, they're in this together, they are indeed going to complete this tower. But let's fix that. Let's create chaos. Let's give them all the gift of speaking in different dialects so they cannot understand one another. God always gets the last word. God always gets the last word. Do you remember the story of Jonah? In Jonah chapter 1, it begins, and God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against them because their wickedness has risen up to me. The next verse says, But Jonah got on a boat and went the opposite direction to Tarshish. God told him, and Jonah said, no. Then the next verse says, but then God sent a mighty wind and a tempest on the sea. And you remember where Jonah ended up, don't you? Three days in the belly of a fish. He ended up going to Nineveh. God always gets the last word. We can assemble our councils. We can make our plans. But God has the final say. Those who choose their own way will always end up frustrated. There's a way that seems right unto men, the proverb says, but the end is death. Anything that we put above God in our lives will one day come crashing down. So it says, God came down. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. Now because God is spirit and omnipresent, not confined to a body, this is what they call an anthropomorphism. I won't say it again. A big long word to describe that uh, we're giving human attributes to God like a man. God could see without coming down. He's omnipresent. But we're given this word picture. Man is building a tower to reach to the heavens, a structure so impressive to the human eye, a plan this great tower would make these people famous for the rest of time. 
Their reputation would be forever remembered by the greatness of this city and this place of worship to some new god of their imagination. How impressive, how impressed would God have been with the magnitude of that tower? God who dwells in the heavens, whose footstool is the planet that we are living on today. How many galaxies are there? We don't know. But we live in one. And it would only take you 100,000 light years to go from one side of the Milky Way to the other. It's a long... And so they're building this tower. And so when God comes down to look at it, the other day when I was sweeping the floor at home, I found one of those little green houses. Monopoly. I forgot to bring it. But to God, that's the way that tower would have looked. He would have come down and... and the greatness of God compared to the greatness of man? My goodness. Puny. Verse 8 and 9 said this, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of of all the earth. Now, if I understand right, Shinar meant that it was a gateway to heaven, but it became called Babel, a place of total confusion. The history of the world is filled with stories of men and women just like Nimrod, all about making a name for themselves, all about being the master of their own destiny. The city of Babylon would eventually see a day of greatness. Later on, God used them as an instrument of judgment and discipline for Judea and Jerusalem, the 70-year exile. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. He thought he was something pretty special. Remember, he had a great statue made in honor of himself, made everybody bow down and worship the great statue of him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't. He had a dream. He saw this great thing, and, and Daniel warned him. Daniel warned him. If you don't put God, there's coming a day that you'll be sorry. And one day he's on his balcony looking over his great city of Babylon. It was one of the seven wonders of the world at one point in time. Look at what I built. Look what I've done. And in that moment, God struck him insane. And for the next seven years, he lived like an animal in the field, eating grass, his hair growing like that on a, an animal, and claws. And when he comes to his right mind, there's only one God, and it's not me. It's Yahweh. In the book of Acts, we read the story of Herod. He thought he was pretty special. 
And on a day when he gave a speech and the people applauded and he said, he has the voice of the gods. And as he's all puffed up, God struck him with worms. And he died. Each one of us is susceptible to the sins of Babylon. Susceptible to pride and arrogance and disobeying the Word of God. We are all susceptible to pride, to arrogance, and disobeying the Word of God. And it usually starts out really small, and there's a drift, like a snowball rolling. The story of the Tower of Babel is in the book to remind us of this. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. This morning we spent some time focusing on the word come. The people of Shinar said, come, build bricks, build a city, build a tower. God said to God, come, let us go down. The first come was spoken by man to man against God. This is not in your notes, it's just on the screen. The second come was spoken by God to God against man. But I want you to know that the good news that the Bible contains a series of come invitations from God to man for man's benefit. I just want to give you three of them. Isaiah 1.18, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the last one in the last chapter of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Great benefits by accepting God's invitation to come. First benefit, my sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. I talked about that when we were taking my communion. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. We are set free from our past. I am not defined by the stupid things, sinful things that I've done in my past. Old things passed away. All things become new because my sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. And everybody said, today I'm a child of God. I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Do you? Secondly, my burdens are lifted. My burdens are lifted. Jesus said, come to me who are weary, I will give you rest. Come to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The next verse, verse 29, says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, 
For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The yoke, that's two beasts of burdens working together. He said, take my yoke upon you. How is my burden lightened? The Savior, he's carrying it. I walk with him. Walking with him. And though it might not change the circumstance, there comes a supernatural rest to my spirit, to my soul, that affects the way that I face life in Jesus Christ. Number three, my spiritual thirst is quenched. My spiritual thirst is quenched. An inherent need that we all were born with. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastic, God put eternity in our hearts. There is a thirst in us for the eternal, to know God. Chapter 4 of John, you remember the story of Jesus said to the disciples, we need to go through Samaria. And when they come to the well of Sychar, the disciples go to get lunch in the marketplace. And as Jesus is sitting there, a woman comes in the middle of the day to draw water. And Jesus says to this Samaritan woman, would you please give me a drink of water? You're a Jew, and you're talking to me, a Samaritan, and you're a man, and I'm a woman, and you're talking. And he said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask of me of water, living water, that you'd never have to drink again. You'd never have to come again. I would quench that thirst. And it took her a few minutes, but as the conversation went on, she understood that Jesus was talking about the thirst in her soul that she'd been trying to satisfy by re- different relationships with five husbands and now man number six. Everybody's longing, looking for something to fill that. And when we come to Jesus, there is a satisfaction in our soul that you can find nowhere else. I want you to know that when you come to Jesus, the effects of the curse are broken. The effects of the curse are broken. In Acts chapter 2, we get the earnest payment on the final removal of the curse of languages. One day the church at large, believers from Every ethnic group from under the sun will be gathered together in the place that Jesus is preparing for us. And there will be no more confusion of languages. We will understand each other clearly. Remember in Acts chapter 2 when the people have been in prayer room waiting for the Holy Spirit. And when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to worship God in languages they did not know. And the people from Jerus- that were in Jerusalem for the feast at that particular time, they, and from other nations, they heard their own languages being spoken by these people under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. There'll come a day when we will understand each other, no matter where we're at on the globe, when we're standing in the presence of the Lord. Because we are on our way to the city built by God. We are on our way to the city built by God. Talked about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. How he was a nomad. 
moving from place to place because God said everywhere you walk, I'll give that to you. And it says in that chapter, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. His city's not made out of bricks that were fired in the fire and put together with pitch. It's described as streets of solid gold, gates of pearl. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know if that's figurative or if that's real, but I'll tell you what, whatever God's building, it will last forever and forever, and there will be no power that can rise up against it. The foundations of heaven will never be shaken. Nimrod and the people of Babylon wanted to make a name for themselves. It did not work out well for them all. Number six, we will all be given a new name, a forever name, God's name. We will all be given a new name, a forever name, God's name. Revelations 3, verse 12, God's saying to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The story of the Tower of Babel, and by the way, I read enough, I could preach three, four times and not repeat myself, but we're not going to. The story of Babel tells me this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And he will make straight your paths.